0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. And and I guess welcome. It looks like maybe some of you from the the interfaith organization have stayed. It's so nice to have you here. Um, My name is Pat Yangst. I've been around a long time. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't get this gray hair for nothing. I mean, I've been around the center for a long time as well as around the earth for a long time. <laughs> so I was going to talk, about, I am going to talk about uh, uh, Buddha mind today. We've been having a, retreat, uh, a uh, practice period for the last uh, six weeks, and... Uh, It's on uh, Mind is Buddha So I'm going to talk I'm going to talk about this Buddha mind today I hope I can do it justice It's not a very easy topic Uh, I found that when I needed some inspiration For this talk I opened various Buddhist books that I have And I found out that That's what they're all talking about I hadn't noticed them before (laughs) So I I did not lack For for material Um, Okay so um, this uh, is this the first time I've used the uh, audio system. It works pretty well. It feels real natural. I guess everybody can hear me. Yeah. yeah. Is, is everybody yeah. Okay. Everybody can everybody hear in the back? No. Okay. Speak up a little bit. Hello? Oh, oh, okay. Um, okay. Well, those of us who meditate and have a meditation practice, And maybe that's most everybody in the room. I'm not sure, but um, most of us who have a meditation practice um, get really up close and personal with all the little things in life, little things like, like our breath. You know, uh, do you guys find it kind of amazing that uh, ever since you've been born, you've been breathing? I mean, I doubt if I've missed more than a minute of breath, maybe underwater or something, (laughs) swimming. But, you know, I think, to me that's pretty amazing that this thing is just going on all the time, not just with me, but with 9 billion other people and all the animals and, you know. And and, um, my heart has been beating all along, never stopping. We've got uh, all these laws of physics that are always acting. They never stop. There's always gravity. We always have a center of gravity. It never, ever leaves us. We always have a shadow. And uh, I don't know, just um, thousands and thousands of other things that are, are just going on in our own bodies. I don't think meditators usually get too up close a person with their kidney function, for instance, but it's always working. Well, I mean, you know, there are problems that come <laughs> up, but, you know. Um, so uh, I think all this stuff going on, all these this quiet functioning that's taking care of us and we don't have to lift a finger. We don't have to even notice that this stuff is going on. I think this is a huge indication that the that the universe is taking care of us that we are held in the arms of the universe and we can we can trust the universe to to be there for us in in all these you know physical ways but i wanted to talk about buddha mind or or buddha nature which is another absolute constant maybe far bigger than all these other things um so So what is the origin of the word Buddha? I think probably a lot of people know that. Anybody want to volunteer that answer? The origin of the word Buddha? Mary? It it means the one who woke up. That's right. I always thought that. I just wanted to check it so I Googled it. (laughs) Uh, Just to make sure. And I learned some interesting things. That that it comes from uh, the root bud, B-U-D-H, which... uh, means to wait or gain consciousness, uh, and uh, I learned another interesting thing, I don't know if this is true, it says that uh, roosters in India are, are traditionally called uh, bodhis because they wake everybody up. Anybody? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, don't know that. I don't know if that's really true. It's, it's okay. I thought it was interesting. What? I said I have some of those in my neighborhood. Oh, <laughs> now you know they're yeah. <laughs> Another manifestation of Buddha nature. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, uh, so awakened mind is the mind of Buddha. And, um, um, you know, this, this article I read went on to say that most all of us are asleep most of the time. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're asleep most of the time? Yeah. 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 I can see it in meditation. You know, sometimes my mind wanders off, and uh, I come back to the room, and I think, what was I thinking? And it's like waking up from a dream sometimes, you know? You had that experience where you feel like you just woke up from a dream, and you can hardly remember what it was you were so busy thinking about just two seconds ago, you know? So I really believe that I am asleep. I can I can see actual evidence of it um so uh so but but the fact that we are asleep implies that we're asleep from something i mean we're you know there's got to be another side to it if you're asleep there must be an awake state and that awake state is uh, a potential that's always always with us always with us you know any moment you can awake I mean, I don't mean, you know, most of us aren't going to awaken and stay that way, you know, like, like the Buddha more we think did, did. But we can awaken for a like few minutes. We can awaken for this moment. And we can awaken, um, you know, any time. And uh, then go back to sleep again, but, you know, at least we've now had that experience and we'll be ready for the next one, you know. Uh, so, you know, the more we practice, the more, more awake moments we have. Um, so this potential to awake is always with us just like our center of gravity is always with us Um, so uh, uh, we also have something that we chant we have a luminous mirror wisdom which isn't really any different from Buddha nature our our luminous mirror wisdom but I kind of brought that into the picture because I wanted to talk about mirrors because mirrors are uh, a wonderful metaphor in our practice, you know, the mirror. Because, you know, like, like uh, a mirror is always reflecting. You ever Can you shut a mirror off? I mean, you could put a cloth over it or something, but it's still going to be reflecting. Unless it's an electronic mirror, I guess you could shut that off. But, you know, a, a piece of glass with silver in you behind it is always going to be reflecting. And when you look at the mirror, all you see is a reflection. You don't really see the mirror. And uh, this is, I think, a great metaphor for, uh, for the way our minds work, too, that we're always reflecting what's around us. We've got these, what the world calls five senses, but Buddhism calls six senses. Uh, you know, our ears, eyes, nose, mouth, sense of touch. But Buddhism adds the mind as a sense organ, which I think is rather brilliant, really, because the mind has so much to do with, Sensing, what's what's going on? You know, um, of course it gets us in a lot of trouble too, but you know, it's it's all good. <laughs> Minds are great. <laughs> I'm glad I have one still. <laughs> 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 I hope I've got it for a lot longer. But you know, um, so anyway, so um, so we're always we're always sensing. The sensing is always going on. I mean. You know we sleep, but you know when we're when we're awake, or when we're standing up and (laughs) functioning, we're we're always we're always sensing. We can't stop it. There's always this image in front of my face that I can't turn off. Um, And uh, but of course we're not always aware of what we're sensing. Uh, Our awareness goes in and out and moves around. I may be uh, standing in a beautiful valley with mountains and clear streams and and see it all in front of me but it, it, it's coming into my eyes and there it is but I'm worrying about something and so or I'm listening for a sound and I'm not really too aware of what I'm seeing but nevertheless that sensing is going on just, just like that center of gravity it's always there so just like the mirror so our luminous mirror wisdom isn't exactly about the sensing thing, but I think it's it's a a good way to think of it. Um, So, when uh, Kokyo Henkel was here, um, he he was here at the beginning of our retreat. Uh, He's a Zen teacher from California. And, And not this time when he was here, but I think he was here about a year ago, maybe, some two years ago, I don't know, sometime in the not too distant past, and he spent most of the time talking about. Anybody remember? He talked about the movie screen. He compared the Buddha nature or the Buddha mind to the movie screen, which I thought was a wonderful, a wonderful metaphor because there's this big white screen, and. Then there's all these little flickers on it of this of this movie that we're watching, and we're really absorbed in the movie. The movie really has us, you know. And we're we're just, uh, uh, but but the movie wouldn't be happening if there weren't that screen there. And we we don't even notice the screen. I mean, it's just it's just the the uh, uh, facilitator for for this movie, and we get all absorbed in the movie, and uh, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of love that, um, that, um, metaphor for, um, for, for Buddha nature. And, um, although, although it has a problem of kind of making Buddha nature into a thing, you know, a movie screen, which of course so it not just a metaphor, but, uh, this, this flickering, uh, Light that's playing on to the screen becomes so real to us, right? We're in this movie and we're totally absorbed and then, then the movie's over and we get up and we walk out in the parking lot and the hot sun is blaring down and all of a sudden we're, we are in real. Oh my gosh, I've forgotten about all of this. <laughs> and, uh, and we also forget about our Buddha nature that is... is is. Because we're, our, our, uh, our, we get so caught up in our, in our little lives, in our, uh, uh, in our, in our taking on of roles. We all take on roles for ourselves, and we, we make uh, our life into something very important. Because you know nobody wants to be a, a nobody, right? Nobody wants to, uh, to not be pretty active. And the, the opposite of being active is being dead and we're, we're a little bit scared of that so we try to keep really busy and keep convincing everybody that we're very real and our life, our life is very real and very important and um, so we, we get all absorbed in that and we forget about uh, we forget about the, uh, the movie screen behind it all uh, one way to think of, of this Buddha nature is, is a great spaciousness, which is sort of like a movie screen, I guess, a great big white spaciousness. It's spaciousness, it's silence. Um, and, um, and we forget about it. Um, has anybody, how many people are familiar with the book Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism by Trungpa Rinpoche? Yeah, oh, lots of people still. Okay. I mean, you know, there's been so many books since then, I never know what people are reading anymore. It was one of my favorite books. He uh, has a chapter in there, and he talks about a monkey. And he goes through this whole process of sort of kind of out What happens to us? Why do we forget? Why do we forget our big, luminous, spacious Buddha nature? Why do we forget it? He tries to explain it. It's pretty visceral. It's, it's quite a good read. <laughs> um, whether he actually uh, yeah why did we forget um, so uh, there's a lot of words for Buddha nature what are some words for Buddha nature that you use Anybody? universal self universal self yeah Yeah. Big Mind? Big Mind, yeah, it's a good one, yeah. I had some ideas written here, but I can't find them. Um. And, oh yeah, Ordinary Mind, what about Ordinary Mind? Yeah. Original Face, Essence of Mind, mm-hmm. Luminous Mere Mind is another word for good nature. The one who is not busy. I'll talk about about that in a little bit. The one who's not busy. We're busy, but there's always one who's not busy with us at all times. Um, Emptiness, too. Emptiness is is a word we frequently use for this big spacious uh, thing, this big spaciousness, big spacious silence that we're all made out of, really. Uh, I've heard that the Buddha didn't call himself didn't call himself a Buddha. He liked to go. He liked to call himself the Tathagata. Tathagata. It's kind of a hard word to define. I think there's a lot of uh, different definitions of it Uh, in Tim's uh, um, uh, mind class. Trust in mind in the trust in mind class that just ended Thursday. Uh, he talked. Uh, Tim said that uh, "tata tata" means suchness. And suchness is uh, probably also kind of a hard word to define too, but uh, I think it just kind of means something like "isness" or, or just "what is." You know, this suchness. This is what, what this is what is. I am. I am who I am. I am. Uh, you know, I am who I am. Um, and one scholar that I read about, I call them scholars. I Google them, and I find them. And I assume they're scholars, because they sound like <laughs> scholars, but they could be fooling me. But anyway, one scholar said that uh, by putting the word gata on the end of tata, it, it, kind of, um, it kind of conveyed the feeling of no movement in either direction. So it kind of lay uh, out a very still sort of a stillness. So um, you know the, the the Buddha thought of himself as a, as a being, you know, a being. How many times do we think of ourselves as beings? We're human beings, right? But many of us think of ourselves are more like human human doings. <laughs> Have you heard that play of word? <laughs> human doings rather than human human beings. Just just being, just uh, just being a, a reflection of this this great this great root in nature. Um, I don't know, I, I brought this book with me because I love this book. I'm probably not going to read from it, but it's. I feel good just having a book with me. I you know, feel like, oh, if I have to, I could just open it and read something. <laughs> but anyway, this is The Magic of Awareness by Anand Tubton. How many people have read this? This is just the most beautiful book. I just love it. He just... Uh, I actually met, uh, met a woman the other day who's a student of his. But uh, anyway, uh, he says, uh, he says, there's a dimension of reality in which we are nobody, in which we don't have anything. So that's a description of Buddha nature. or uh, Emptiness, having, having being nobody and having nothing. Does anybody want to be nobody and have nothing? if everybody else is nobody <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah uh, yeah and that's it's and, and since that's true I guess yeah. maybe another way to say that is we, have, we are everybody and well we I'm, have I'm coming to that I'm I'm <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> right <laughs> And so, and so yes, everybody everybody does have it too. So, yes, uh, yeah. So this word emptiness. This is um, uh, this word emptiness, uh, which you know we know we've learned the definition of Buddhist. The, the Buddhist definition of emptiness is really emptiness of a separate self. That this this big uh, supposed nothingness that we see, this big silent spaciousness, is. Is is empty of selves, it's empty of ourself, and you know, empty of every all selves. It's, but it's full of everything else. It's full of all potential, and there's nothing to get in the way because it's empty. So, you know, then uh, you can see forever in it, and it, it, there's just nothing to get in the way. There's nothing to bind anybody. There's nothing to confuse anybody. It's there's this emptiness which is. Is as full of, of all potential, and our lives grow out of this. If we didn't have this, if this weren't the way of the world, we couldn't function. We'd just be frozen, you know. Um, uh, um, I don't know we'd be, we couldn't move. We need that spaciousness to move in. So we we somehow come from this spaciousness. It is our it is our our. Our uh, birthright, and it is our it is us, really. And um, we um, uh, we become somebody because we come from this world of nobody. You know, we become somebody, and the more in touch we are with this world of spacious emptiness, nobodyness, whatever you want to call it, the more in touch with us with it the the more useful as somebody we can be, you know. So, I think to be fully a somebody, you have to also be fully a nobody, you know. And you have to you know, be aware of, of this of this side of you. It's not really a side of you, it's really all of you. It's all, it's all, um, yeah, I told you this is really hard to talk about. <laughs> But anyway, so we're, uh, we're, we're sort of these, these somebody-nobodies. And, um, uh, and uh, to me, you know, this word emptiness, this emptiness of a separate self, so what does emptiness of a separate self mean? Well, it, it, it means uh, that there's no separateness, that we're all one. So have you ever thought, why don't we just say we're all one? Why don't we just say, you know, we're all one? Why do we say this kind of silly phrase, emptiness of a separate self? I think it, I used to really ponder about this. Thought, that's a really strange way to say we're all one. We're all, um, um, you know. Stating the obvious. What's that? I said, you mean stating the obvious? yeah. Yeah, why don't we just take the obvious instead of making it into this kind of convoluted fruit that is very confusing to a lot of people people hear emptiness and they sort of think nihilism and nothingness and and uh they uh struggle you know well, i don't want to be a buddhist they believe in nothingness they believe in emptiness you know um and uh, people lately, I know that the, the, um, uh, Joan Halifax and Kaz Tanahashi recently, not too recently, I don't know, probably a few years ago, wrote, a, a, well, first of all, Heart Sutra. Okay, so the Heart Sutra is our big document on emptiness, and it talks about emptiness is form, form is emptiness, which has, is kind of is a way of saying that this, you know, our form is our, our self that we, we generate, or the self that you see walking around here and all these all of these forms in this room. And, and then the emptiness is the the more the Buddha nature. So, but they're the same thing, and that's what the Heart Sutra is saying: form is emptiness, emptiness form. And that, so that's our big source of uh, uh, you know our most important um, sutra uh, about about this subject of emptiness. And anyway, so uh, Joan Halifax and Taz Kanahashi wrote a different version of the Heart Sutra, which when I first heard it, I just loved it, because they changed the word emptiness, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, they changed it to boundlessness. Boundlessness is form, form is boundlessness. It's a lot easier to comprehend, I think, for new people. And I just, but when I first heard it, I just loved it. But you know... I think it leaves something out, and something really important that this word emptiness gives to us, and that is that it doesn't, it it sounds wonderful, you could put it on a Hallmark card, you know, um, know, boundless, uh, or or you could put, oh, you could put, uh, Hallmark card says, uh, yes, we're not separate, happy birthday, and remember, we're not separate, you know, or life is boundless, you know, it all sounds so good. But what this word emptiness does for us is something, something very special. It puts in front of us this horrible emptiness. We hear emptiness and nothingness and nobodiness, and we're scared. This scares us more than anything, being nobody, or being, you know, just kind of not, life doesn't mean anything. It's the scariest thing we have to face because it's basically the fear of death. Right? And death is the biggest fear that human beings have. So it's a very scary term. But what it what it forces you to do is to work with this and come to this realization that this this nothingness, this nobodiness is really everything. So it it's this it's just this great I mean, I don't know, I guess I myself have been through um, dealing with this myself, I used to have this. Um, I used to have uh, for a long time. Uh, I had. I used to have. A, well, I still have anxiety but I used to have lots more. And I. I used to. I finally realized that I had this in my mental landscape. I envisioned a big abyss, and I was on the side of the abyss, and that was, you know, and it was scary it was really scary, and when I would go there, I would get, like depressed, anxious, it was, it was very, very difficult for me, and it kind of rose to a crescendo six or seven years ago, and, um, uh, uh one time I was sitting in my house, and I, you know, was feeling very, the presence of this abyss, and feeling, you know, very anxious, and, uh, and all of a sudden, I just, this question came up in me. The question rose and it said, Do you think that this abyss is really the same thing as a shunyata? Or shunyata stands for, for emptiness that's in the heart circuit. Is, is it really the same thing as that? And what was interesting about that question was that intellectually, I think I knew that that, that was. True, but I don't think in my gut I had ever realized it. And somehow realizing that, um, asking that question—you know—I've heard that how important inquiry is. You know, that question came up. I don't, and I—I I, I just remember thinking, well, I think maybe, maybe it is the same. You know, but I don't remember definitively answering it. But and 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 it was just a moment. It didn't seem like anything special. But, uh, sometime later, maybe a few days later, I don't know how, how much later, I, I suddenly noticed that I didn't have the abyss anymore. It had gone away. It was like, uh, probably one of those amazing things that just happened in my life, and I mean at the time, I, you know, it wasn't. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that it changed me terribly. I still get anxious about things, I still worry, I still... but. I, I think that there was a lightness that, that that came on after that, so I guess that's why I'm trying. That's why I like this word emptiness because it forces us to see the the, the paradoxical nature of of this word, the emptiness. And uh, so I think it's. a And I, I, I'd love to know how it came to be, how this word, you know, uh, how it. I assume it's not just English that calls it this way, but I'd love to know how, uh, what brilliant people, um, you know, came up with this way of saying things that uh, maybe, maybe it goes all the way back to India, and has always been said that way. Anyway, I don't know, I really didn't need to get into all that, but, uh, but I, I, just, I, I just have a lot of respect for this, this way of expressing, um, this this nature of calling it emptiness. It's like it's like it's like a, a paradoxical thing. You know, um, Janice Japlin's song about um, um, what's, her, what's her famous song about? Freedom's, freedom's to lose. yeah, that's Freedom's, right. freedom's right. just another word for nothing left to lose. You know, <laughs> freedom's just another word for nothing nothing left to lose. You know. That's a very paradoxical statement. Of course, Janice was looking at it like, you know, the nihilistic thing, you know, nothing. I have nothing if I, if I don't have you. You know, I have nothing. But, you know, having nothing left to lose is like a real state of freedom. Having nothing left to lose is is being free. And and if we don't have anything left to lose, then we're not afraid anymore. So it's actually a an anthem to... Uh, and she didn't mean it this way but you know you, could, you can completely look at it in a completely different way like, you know, having nothing left to lose wow you know if we don't have a self we don't have anything to be afraid of do we because isn't that what we're always afraid we're afraid our self isn't going to look good or it's going to get hurt or it's always around our self you know um so um Not having a self is, wow, it's kind of a great gift, really. Um, We'll see. Um, I did want to bring up another metaphor, this other metaphor that I briefly mentioned for... um, uh, Buddha mind, which is the one who is not busy, the one who is not busy. Um, that part comes from a, a koan about Da um, Dablu and his um, brother Yunyang. Young. Um, they were monks, and uh, 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 Yun Young was. Uh, sweeping. He was sweeping the monastery floor or something, and his brother, uh, Dua, uh Da Wu said, um, uh, you know, there's one that's not busy. He must have been looking really officious and busy about, it, you know, I'm like really important. I'm sweeping floor here. You know, um, I don't know. And, uh, so Da Wu said, uh, you know, there's one who's not busy, and, um, uh, so Yung uh, Long said, uh, wait a minute. I'm sorry, I'm not reading this. I'm going to read what I have here because I'm going to say this all wrong. All right. Okay, this is, uh, this is a quote. This is from Joan Halifax. Um, and I, I'll maybe she says some pretty good things. So I think I'll just read what she says because I think it's really good. She was responding to a student who said, "You know, you seem to get so much done around here, and yet you always, you know, seem to be kind of relaxed." And uh, he said, "Do you rest a lot?" And she said, "Well, sometimes I rest, but I don't take naps every day. Though at my age, this is happening a lot more. But, but I'm not talking about the kind of rest that a good vacation provides, nor the kind of rest that is escapist." Rather, the kind of rest found in the experience of being relatively at ease in the midst midst of things, Even, even quite difficult situations. Ease that is about having a lack of resistance to what is before me and being fully present and steady. This mix of no resistance and steadiness is something we cultivate in Buddhist meditation. In my own practice, I learned that giving full attention to an object, such as the breath, engenders steadiness and ease as well as power and rest. When we strengthen these qualities, we can usually meet life with, what rather, with somebody's full heartedness. In Buddhism, being occupied and preoccupied is not a source of merit. You know, it's interesting about practice. You cannot become enlightened by being busy. In fact, busyness distracts us away from what is happening in the present moment, which we need stillness to perceive. The, this perspective is reflected in a wonderful exchange between two brothers during China's Tang Dynasty, Yunyan and Da Wu. Yunyan is sweeping the ground. His elder brother Da Wu says, too busy. Oh, I, 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 think, I don't think they were really brothers. They were monk brothers. The, so his elder brother Da Wu said, too busy. Yun, and that's what, he said, too busy. And then Yunyan replies, well, you should know that there's one who's not busy. Oh, and then uh, Du Wu says, oh, you mean there are two moons? Yunnan then holds up the broom and he says, which moon is this? Well, that story probably goes right over most people's mine. So but she explains this very nicely. So I'm going to read what she says. Uh, I didn't read it very clearly. I'm going to start. Duol says, too busy. He's saying that to the, the guy that was sleeping, Yunyan. So Yunnan says, well, you should know there's one who's not busy. And then Duol says, oh, you mean there are two moons. And then Yunnan holds up the broom and says, which moon is this? So um, here's what Jung says about it. This story first appears in the 13th century compilation of koans. The younger brother, Yun-Yang, is sweeping the ground. Maybe there's a taste of busyness in how he is sweeping. When his brother calls him out for being too busy, Yun-Yang probably stops sweeping. But then he gives du a cliched Zen answer. There is one who is not busy. This is the kind of answer a new Zen student might give, right out of a bad Zen book. (laughs) Uh, Duao sees this answer. It said this answer is his end dodge, and he doesn't let his brother off the hook. Yunyan, the sweeper, has split the world into two: those who are busy and those who are not busy. You, and says, so he says, you mean there are two moons? He challenges him. There's a doer and a non-doer. There's a busy person and a still person. Yunyan sees his mistake, and he lifts the broom off the floor, stopping his busyness, holds it in front of his brother Duowao. Which moon is this, he asks. At that moment, Yan has sliced through the difference, duality and self, and self-other, or the duality of self and other. He understands that reality is not divided into doer and not doer, doing and not doing. Reality is just this moment with no broom on the ground, no doer, no deed, no one being busy, nothing to be busy about. And he awakens. Yeah. I hope that makes some kind of sense. <laughs> but I thought she I thought she worded that so beautifully and, you know so, so so when we're just in this moment, no matter what we're doing, we there's no duality between us and our Buddha nature, our busyness and our non busyness our some oneness and our no oneness, you know. Um, is anybody a Leonard Cohen fan in here? I thought I'd read this this song because I think it's, I, I don't know if it's actually really germane to my talk, but I just, I love it. And it's a very Buddhist and. Uh, uh, it's, it's a song from his uh, album, Old Ideas, which came out a few years before he died. and is about old age and death and, and all that. His own, impending old age and death. And this is called Going Home. And, so, and I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to sing it. You should be very grateful for <laughs> I'd love to speak with Leonard. Now, this is Leonard speaking, of course. He, he wrote, right? This is his song. I'd love to speak with Leonard. He's a sportsman and a shepherd. He's a lazy bastard living in a suit. But he does say what I tell him, even though it isn't welcome. He just doesn't have the freedom to refuse. He will speak these words of wisdom like a sage, a man of vision, though he knows he's really nothing but a brief elaboration of a tune. And then he has a verse, going home without my sorrow, going home sometime tomorrow, going home to where it's better than before. Going home without my burden, going home behind the curtain, there okay, rhymes, going home without this costume that I wore. And in the second verse he wants to write a love song, an anthem of forgiving, a manual for living with defeat, a cry about the suffering, the sacrifice recovering. But that isn't what I need him to complete. I want him to be certain that he doesn't have the burden, that he doesn't need a vision, that he only has permission to do my instant bidding, which is to say what I have told him to repeat. I don't know. This struck me how compassionate he was to himself, that he doesn't need a burden. He doesn't need a vision. So. Well, um, before we do that, does, does anybody have any questions or comments? Or, yeah. You. Okay, I wanted to make the connection there that you, you were getting to with the slicing of duality of the of mind and the, the busy or not busy, right? Um, yeah. The, uh, the analogy of the screen, and it, it always kind of struck me one of the most power, powerful statements in that whole, in the whole example that I think Patricia gave was uh, that there's no separation between the movie and the screen. Right? Oh, they're, true. They're the same. Yeah. You have the one and you have the other, but the truth is all of it yeah that's a good that's a thank you everybody hear that Mm -hmm. removing the screen there's no separation (laughs) so we'll get to go in and drink tea and have cookies